Welcome. Good morning. It's good to see you all. I feel like it feels fuller here this morning, so that's both great and a little nerve-wracking. So, <laughs> so um, Rochelle will tell you that this chord is too short. I guess I'm just going to adapt this way. Here, hold on a second. See if I can help stuff. So we're going to go lopsided. Everyone on this side of the room, I'm sorry. You get to see me better. Better? That's good enough. Um, so this morning we're talking about this notion, the characteristic of God, that he is great. And it would be very convenient, convenient for me to just declare that. Say, hey, you've sung the songs this morning that say he's great, and then just you know, walk off the stage, because what else needs to be said, right? Um, but I have, you know, time to fill, and that's not what you guys came here for, so uh, we're not going to do that. I do want to suggest that what I want to do this morning is a little bit different than what we would normally do. I kind of want this to be a bit of a journey uh, for everyone, because I've started by making a, a pretty extraordinary, extraordinary claim that God is great. Um, and I think for some of us, it's like, oh yeah, I've heard that before, I, I know that. But that's only part of the puzzle, because just saying that God is great doesn't say how that applies to my life. And I think when we start from this notion that God is great, we can end up in one of several places. And hopefully today, as we work through those, uh, you'll figure out where you end up, and I hope, uh, I'm going to give this away. I hope that you end up at the place of joy. I don't think that most people, when they hear God is great, automatically think, and, and so I'm joyful, right? That's how that applies to me. But my hope is that that is how that will apply to you. Um, I think it's also ironic that this message is one that I've struggled with a lot. Um, I was talking about this with, with Rochelle last night. It's like, man, this is just not turning out the way I had hoped. And um, it's a message that, when you were a kid, did you ever sit down to, I don't know, draw a picture of a cat or a dog or maybe an elephant? And it always turns out the same, sort of a mutant four-legged duck, right? <laughs> and your parents come by and they say, oh, sweetie, what a lovely cat. It's an elephant, Mom. Um, that's okay, because I'm not the one on the stage trying to be great. I'm just pointing to God, who is great. So let's continue. Please, I hope I have accept, uh, I've set the expectation low enough that uh, regardless of what I say, you will come away thinking God really is great, and I can have joy in that. Um, let's talk about language a little bit and ask ourselves a question, what is great? And I, I really mean this to be a question, so like we're gonna have a conversation here. What is something great? What makes something great? Let's ask it that way. It's a size. Size. Really something really big, sure, okay. Other ideas? Better than the alternatives. Uh, the best, okay, sure, <laughs> I like that. Other thoughts? Admiration, something that is to be admired. Okay, I like that, that's good. Impact, something that has deep impact, okay? Think the, of, uh, 
overwhelming. Okay, I, that is something that is great. I think that's a great synonym. A great synonym. Yeah. <laughs> something that has power. Absolutely. I, it's hard to think of something that's great without power. I think quesadillas are really great. Quesadillas. I like that. And they are. They truly are. They're quick. They're easy. My kids love them. That is for lunch. Okay. Um, okay. I have on my list something that is great has power. It has the ability to control. And it has abundance or limitness, limitlessness. Uh, and the question next is, how do we feel about encountering these sorts of things? What do you think of when, oh, you know what? Go back one. I skipped a slide. What is something that is like this? What's something that has power or control or abundance? Blue whales. Blue whales, yes, thank you for that. That is something great. The ocean, yeah, with its waves and its currents, and we're kind of powerless in its grip oftentimes. Yeah, that's great. Earth, an earthquake, yeah, great and destructive. Dictators, um, yes, no, yes, absolutely. I don't think that they're good, but they certainly, um, they wield a lot of power, sure. I hope you're getting the idea. There probably aren't many wrong answers, although I'm sure Kevin can come up with one. <laughs> He's trying, I know, I know. All right, um, a storm, uh, like a big lightning storm that, uh, that you don't wanna be in, but you look at it and that's amazing and beautiful and awesome and powerful and I'm glad I'm in my house. Um, okay, how do we feel when we're in, uh, encountering these things? Intimidated, yes. I like that one. Trepidatious. Trepidatious, says the English major. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Powerless, yes, at the mercy. Very small. Very small, yeah, okay. In awe. In awe, yes. Uh, maybe a sense of danger, tension, uh, excitement. Those are all ways that we might feel about that. So here's another question. What do we do when we encounter things that are great? Run. Yes, run, we run and hide, yes. Run into our house away from the storm, right? That's a great answer, thank you. What else might we do? Now on the flip side, we really enjoy it. Oh, like we might enjoy it. Like what? Like quesadillas. Like quesadillas, yes, exactly. We might enjoy those quesadillas. Yes, we recognize how small we are, yeah. There's some, there's some understanding that we get from that, uh, at that encounter, yeah. Harness it, yes, we try to control it. We hide, we control. Um, the third thing that I have on here is that we might submit or surrender to it. Um, in the face of a big army, you might you know, lay down your arms and live. Okay, great. So what does it mean for a person to be great? We've talked about forces and even dictators. I guess there are people too. Um, there's a t-shirt for you. What does it mean for a person to be great? What do we think of? What qualities do we think of in a person? Strong. 
strong. Someone who's strong, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, specifically strong in the ways that we're not. So I almost feel like a lot of times when I think of great, like there's separation between what I'm thinking of as me or thinking yeah. of myself. And then strong in ways that I, I, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. They're usually a tyrant. Say again? They're usually a tyrant. A tyrant. Sure, sure. Um, they're uh, at the pinnacle of their, uh, their success or achievement. Yeah. They they exceed expectations, good or bad. Oh yeah, They're, I like that extra. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that adjective gets applied to my kids sometimes. Extra. Well, they're extraordinary. 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 Um, every movie that has someone who's great in it, usually they overcome some obstacle, they, they do the impossible, or what seems impossible. These are things that we think of when we think of people who are great. Um, how about societies? Um, what about, how do societies use their greatness to dominate? Development. Can you expand on that? So discovery is kind of an idea. Yeah, I agree. That one, I, I, when I was thinking about this, I almost all of mine ended up as negative um, aspects, things that I wouldn't want to be applied to myself. But um, uh, the idea of developing technologies or creating new things or building things was about the only positive thing I could think of, which is kind of strange, that societies just don't, don't come out well when we think about it. But yeah, dominating, oppressing, taking. Um, I mean, when you think of how societies interact with each other, there's a lot of conflict. Oh, so a society can have a, a, a focused purpose. Yeah, I like that. Um, Okay, going bigger, what about God? Well, that's what we're here to explore today. Um, and the things I wanna look at in, in particular with God are the ways that he's great, the way he demonstrates control, power, and his limitlessness or abundance. And then of course, um, how we respond to that and what the result is. And to look at that, what would you say, oh, and um, you know, as an aside, since I'm an engineer, um, I wanna talk about limitlessness for like two minutes because I think I can spend that in my, in my time budget. Um, I discovered, several years ago, I discovered uh, um, this fun mathematical quirk, don't fall asleep yet. Um, it's a number. It is the largest number that is useful to people. Yeah, that's for you, Mike. Uh, <laughs> It is a number so incredibly large that if any one of you could completely imagine it, your head would literally explode. Or implode. Yes, I know, I know. Um, that is incredible to think about, that there is such a thing in math that would cause you, just to know it fully, death. And yet, when we think about limitlessness, God's limitlessness, he knows it, and more, because he is infinite. Okay, 
That's my, that's my two minutes, almost two minutes. All right, uh, but when we think about God's greatness demonstrated in the Bible, which story comes to mind immediately? What? Creation, yes, and it was on my list, but it got, it got cut. <laughs> Parting the Red Sea, oh yes, that's part of it. Yeah, the Exodus, I think God, there are a number of stories, let's say, that really demonstrate God's greatness, but the Exodus account has a miraculous thing after miraculous thing that God uses to demonstrate his greatness and do other things as well. So we're going to quickly summarize the beginning of the Exodus. Um, most of you are familiar with the story, but we'll just go right in. God's people are oppressed in Egypt and he decides to rescue them, so he sends Moses, his servant, to be his instrument of rescue. Um, and what's interesting is in Exodus 6, chapter 9, the people don't listen to Moses. He's saying, hey, look, God's going to rescue you. But because of their harsh treatment and their slavery, they're like, no, I don't believe you. Um, you the God you serve can't possibly be greater than our immediate problems. The God you serve is not greater than the gods of Egypt or Pharaoh or the system of oppression that we live under right now. And so there's disbelief and just not gonna hear it. And I think many of us start here in our journey, learning about God's greatness is with disbelief. How could God possibly rescue me from myself, from my problem? How could he? He's not that great. And we, our view of God in those moments is very limited. And I'm not here to judge anyone, as you'll see in a moment. Um, that is a natural response when we can't imagine things different, when we have been oppressed. That's a very natural response. Um, but God does what he's gonna do anyway. He's determined to rescue his people. He sends 10 plagues on Egypt, and the people leave, and they're cornered at the Red Sea, and God parts the sea so that they might pass through and Pharaoh's armies would be destroyed. Quick and easy summary of the Exodus. Um, that rescue at the Red Sea is the first evidence that God is dependable. Not only is he great, but he uses his greatness in dependable ways. So let's just say for the sake of argument that the people now are convinced that God's great. He's, he's basically destroyed or um, won the battle against the gods of Egypt and he's taken them away and now they are in the wilderness. And what do the people expect from God? What would you expect given your history if you were them? What would you expect if generation upon generation of your ancestors had been oppressed? What kind of instincts would you have about what it means to live in the shadow of a God? Yeah, I, you'd, you'd, you'd want to be about as close to that God as a dictator, right? You wouldn't. You would expect from that God scarcity, oppression, and death. 
And so the people grumble, and they complain, and they refuse to submit to God. At least six times, and probably more, up to six times recorded in the Bible, up to the point of their meeting at Sinai. And every time they grumble, what does God do? He provides. He shows that he's dependable. Um, I think I have this quote written out, but the question we might all have at this point is, what were they thinking? They keep seeing God provide for them over and over in the desert, and they keep grumbling and refusing to obey. And it's tempting to think that the Israelites were idiots, just downright stupid. But like I said before, given their private prior experience, they were acting very rational. If Egyptian gods used power for harsh oppression, the best choice for them in this situation was to flee at the very first opportunity and not, and not be oppressed anymore. Why should they put themselves in the same position they just left? Um, I think that people today in the church find themselves in a similar position. They might find themselves thinking or feeling oppressed. Some of them have been wounded by the church and its people. And they might say, I'm not doing that again. And it's totally reasonable to think that way. Um, why would anyone go to God when they had experienced harshness by human systems wearing a costume of God's approval? Why would they do that? And the answer is they wouldn't. And this is the same position that the Israelites were in. And what's the way out? Um, the way out is for God to convince them. But first, their response is to hide. So they don't want to go with God. They don't want to go meet God. We'll see that in a minute as we get to our text. Um, the question is, what would happen to them if they abandoned God? What happens if, they, if they're in the middle of the desert? What happens? Well, some of them go back to Egypt. Maybe some of them make it into Canaan, to a different type of slavery, likely. Um, maybe the, some of them are elevated to oppress others in some situation. Others are scattered, dwindling, dying. It does not go well for them if they hide from God. None of them in that situation would know and live closely with God, experiencing his abundance and rest. That is not a good situation. Um, I like this quote, lost sheep are panicked. You have to tackle them, bind them, and carry them to safely, safety. Yeah, and uh, you see the subtext there. It's a lot like bedtime at my house, right? You need sleep, and I'm going to tackle you and carry you to your bed, and you'll stay there, which never happens. But, um, yeah. God patiently shows them over and over again. He's patient. His power is greater than their fears of scarcity. And as they are approaching Mount Sinai, he draws them ever closer to him. 
And by his actions, he says, I am not like your masters in Egypt. I don't use my greatness to oppress or use you up. Trust me, depend on me for everything. I'm dependable. Let me lead you in abundance and rest. Remember, he gave them water. He gave them food in the middle of the wilderness. They had to depend on him for everything. So let's read from Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. That's pretty great. That would be something to see. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They're still in that state of not being able to trust. Totally reasonable um, to think like, uh, Steve, you got that? Yeah, like that. How about, no, nope, not doing that, not going up there. I think if I were in that position, I'd probably be in their shoes. That looks kind of scary up there. And I left my hiking boots back in Egypt. Um, so, so they hide, they, they stay away from God. And they do something else. And this is what every other human religion teaches. It is, God is great, so I must be, do, be great too. Every other religion teaches that if God is great, I have to be great. Because in our world, Great people go together, right? You don't have great people associating with not great people. It just doesn't happen. Or at least that's not our common experience. So what do they do? They can't control God. They can't control someone descending on a mountain in fire and smoke. So they create a God they can control in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. And that's what we do. So they've already hidden from it or avoided it. Now they're going to control God. Um, the implications of this are many. Remember, they can see God's up on the mountain, and now they have this golden calf that's pretty and sparkly. But it's not real. It doesn't move. It has no power. The earth doesn't tremble. They're deluded into thinking that that is a God. And their desire to control and be great themselves has produced that delusion. Um, I think for, for us, sometimes we think, I'll never be great enough. We despair. Um, we seek our own, when we seek our own greatness, we usually oppress others. So we oppress them, and we get, as a result, relational impoverishment. 
one of my favorite things in the church is in this same, uh, not favorite things, uh, is that in the same idea, do great things for Jesus. Be great for him. How do we feel about that? Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I, I think that's a, a nice sentiment. But ultimately, what, is it, what position does it put me in? My greatness. Exercising my control. God did not leave that option open to the, to the Israelites. Their only choice was dependence. And ultimately, for 40 years, their only choice was dependence. It took that long for them to learn to depend on God. Um, do great things for Jesus should be a red flag for everyone. So, what's our choice? If, if, if my greatness isn't going to work, maybe uh, God is great, so I shouldn't be great. Maybe that's the new, uh, new paradigm we want to shift to. So we've seen God is great. It is God great. He can't conquer my problems. We've seen that didn't happen. So I'm going to hide I'm going to control. I'm going to try and be great. Maybe, maybe the answer is I shouldn't be great. I should just be humble. And I think that gets close, but there's a problem with that that we'll discover. Um, this is a quote from Alan Noble's book, You Are Not Your Own. Uh, in it, he unpacks this idea of our self-ownership, our own greatness, and the fact that just about everyone in our culture pursues that. And he says, the responsibilities of self-belonging require God-like powers to sustain, leaving us exhausted, tired, burned out, and finally bored. We are always becoming fully realized, a fully realized human and never arriving. You will keep searching, keep expressing, keep redefining, keep striving for your autonomous personhood until you die. The best you can do is say with Albert Camus, one, uh, the struggle itself towards the height is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. If you're not familiar with Sisyphus, it's a Greek myth about a god who was cursed to roll a stone up a hill only to have it roll back down, and then he'd roll it back up, to have it roll back down. So maybe I shouldn't pursue my own greatness. The problem with this, and again, I said this is close to right, um, is it produces an attitude of, I'm going to submit to God to avoid disaster, to avoid problems. This is fearful submission. And that is not where I want to leave you today. Let's move forward in the story of Exodus, because what happens next is Moses goes up on the mountain, and he meets God there. So Exodus 34 Moses rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. I'm going to pause for a second. What, if you're not familiar with this verse, what do you think he said there? God, the creator of the universe, looking down at a man standing next to him, says to him, Is that what he says? What would you say? 
No, I, I'm letting a, an awkward silence. What would you say? Look, it, you get, it, I think if I meet someone for the first time, you give them five minutes, and within that five minutes, at some point, they will tell you something about them they feel makes them great. Something. This is what makes me great. This is what I'm about. What does God do with his five minutes? Well, let's find out. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will be by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. A little bit scary, a little bit good, a little bit promising. What is he saying here? What attributes make God great? Mercy is the first thing he says. Grace, patience, unfailing love, faithfulness, forgiveness, and justice. Wow. If you met a person who had those qualities in great amounts, what would you think of them? Could you draw close to a person like that? Could you be in the presence of someone like that? Compare that to the Egyptian gods. What were they like? Were they approachable? Certainly not by the Israelites. So when Moses comes down from the mountain, his face shines in a way that frightens the people. Some of God's greatness had been shared in some way with Moses as he drew close to God. And I think that's our next step. God is great, and he shares himself with me. He desires to share himself with us. What does it look like to draw close to God? What does he say that'll be like? Let's fast forward one to Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We see that with God and the people in the, in the desert. What does he do? He gives them rest over and over again. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what he wants to share with us. In John 10, 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have, have life and have it abundantly. This is the problem that the Israelites had. They didn't know that God wasn't there to steal and kill and destroy them when they left Egypt. But Jesus says, he's here to give us life, abundant life. So what's the result? Rest, life, peace, dependence. God is dependable. He shares his abundance. So instead of do great things for Jesus, which I hope everyone recognizes as a red flag, 
it's far more important to be dependent than effective. God does not give the Israelites the option not to be dependent. And you know what? We sometimes try to take that option, but isn't, that is not living abundantly with God. And this leads us to one of our final points. God is great, so I don't have to be. I can joyfully submit knowing I have lost nothing good that I need. And the difference between the God is great, so I shouldn't be, and the I don't have to be, is recognizing how awful our own greatness is, how God, good God's greatness is, and the freedom and wisdom to choose his greatness with joy. This is joyful submission. So we've talked about hiding, control, and now joyful submission. Not fearful submission, but joyful submission. Um, one more quote from Alan Noble. No matter how much we consciously affirm that our existence is already justified through God, virtually every other voice we interact with us with, with will tell us, no, keep striving, you haven't done enough. Does that feel, does that feel right? Every voice that we've ever heard, you haven't done enough. However, your life is not a quest for significance or self-actualization, but an act of joyful participation. When God shares himself with us and we choose him, there is joyful participation. Um, I hope that you guys hear that. God is great and desires that I joyfully participate with him. He shares everything, all of himself with me. So I don't have to be in control. I don't have to be great. I don't have to strive that way. I get to choose him. Um, I'm gonna open this up for a Q&R. I know that's something, I don't think we do that very often, but I think that's a great thing to do at church because I am not the arbiter of all truth. <laughs> and if you had any questions, I know you're dying to ask about Graham's number. I'm, I'm just absolutely certain of it. Um, if you have any questions, I'm happy to not answer them and maybe have someone else answer them or maybe I will know something about it. But I want us to just pause for a couple minutes and talk to each other. Yeah. You talked about great, but are you here to work for this product? Would you put that in with God is glorious? Or. Right. Because I think of great, I think of how he's holy. Yeah. So uh, the question for those listening online uh, the, the question is God is great. I clearly said that, but what about God is holy? Is that kind of a... Yeah, I was just curious, categorically, if you put that underneath oh. his... Uh, Would I put that under his greatness or his graciousness or gloriousness or his goodness? Is that glorious? Because you didn't bring it up to Right. When I think of God as holy, and I'll 
I might defer to someone else more knowledgeable about this, but when I think about God's holiness, that is a sense of his unique nature. His holiness is composed of all of these things, his greatness, his goodness, his graciousness, and his gloriousness, and plus everything else that makes him God. So to ask the question, uh, is God's holiness part of his greatness? Yeah, or vice versa. His greatness is because he is holy. I don't know, Justin, would you have a different answer maybe? I, I was kind of thinking along the same lines, but... Um, oh, fits. I got that one right. No subtle heresies here, folks. <laughs> Holiness kind of seems to fit in multiple categories, and maybe it's better to think about those categories all fit under his holiness. Because, you know, we talk about something's holy, it's set apart, it's unique, He's good, right, and perfect is another way we say that, yeah. You started by talking about great things in the world. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, those are great in a few categories, control power, the environments. But I think there's a difference between worldly greatness that drives towards that and God's greatness. Worldly greatness is a zero sum, meaning that in order to be great, you have to take from something else. Whereas God is an infinite, he can be great in himself without taking. And so his greatness uh, would fall into the categories of he is maximally, maximally good in all categories. And there's a moral aspect there, but he doesn't need to So I'm glad you said that. Um, this idea that not only is God great, but he is maximally good. And you're absolutely right. However, Justin already talked about that last week. <laughs> but yes, absolutely. His, his goodness, I, I agree, is part of his greatness. But I went to great lengths, pun not intended, to not talk about his goodness in this, in this presentation. My choice. Maybe not the best one. But I only have so much time. A couple more, and then we'll go to the table. Or no more, if no one has it. Like, um, understanding of what was um, the, as the Israelites were existing in Egypt at that time, what the oral tradition was of the stories passed down about who Yahweh was. Because, like, the only stories up till this point is, like, Abraham's connection with him and the covenant, and then, like, how they, he delivered to his family. So let me repeat the question real quick, if I can. Are there, do we know if the Israelites had any oral history telling them who God really was? Yeah, because you were saying like that, you know, they didn't know who he was once they escaped Egypt. This new understanding is that God's are powerful Right. So I think some of them probably did know who God was. But think about it. It was... 400 years. It was, yeah, 400 years since, they, since Abraham, number one. Number two... Um, I think generations of oppression had really pushed that out of, of their common knowledge. Number three, um, their day-to-day -day knowledge was the gods of Egypt. And I think when you're oppressed that way, you, you, you can't
can't see further than, than what's immediately in your, in your face, which would have been the gods of Egypt. Um, I had another idea, but I don't remember it. I'd, I'd be curious. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I think that that's true of us today. We can know things in our head. Mm. We can read the Bible. We can listen to speakers. We can know about God. But if our experience tells us something different. Right. Um, so I'm going to repeat that one. bodies respond in a way that um, goes with our experience rather than what we know to be true. So Audrey says, um, we can know things about God, but if our experience seems different, we're going to go with that. And I think the Israelites were probably... Plus, remember, the Israelites weren't the only ones who left. A lot of Egyptians left too. They looked at what God said and says, and they said, uh, the Egyptian gods aren't as powerful. I think I'm going to go with him. I think that pulls us up to time unless someone has a burning desire to ask one more question, I'm gonna move us towards the table. Um, I have a bonus segment. <laughs> I know, you can't go yet. Uh, the bonus segment is this. There's another G that we don't talk about. God is great, good, glorious, gracious. He's generous. He operates from a position of abundance. And he shares that with us. And because of Jesus and his generous nature, I lack nothing I need. Jesus gave him all of his self, himself, right? His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us so that we might live in abundance. We might have a full connection to the Father. My hope is as you go to the table this morning that we can remember that.